0: Chaos is an interesting concept to contemplate. The human mind is actually especially bad at thinking about chaos. Think about how, how many ways that we are working against it. Science is constantly laboring to gain predictability. Politics exists, whether you would believe it or not, to create reliable structures in society. Teachers function in order to promote knowledge but also to teach logic. Coaches and military officers, their entire job is spent around getting groups of people to behave in expected ways. We are designed to make order out of things which are dis, in disorder. And I know teenagers are especially bad at this, and toddlers are at war against order. But the average adult craves order. We like health. We like a steady paycheck. We like stable prices. We like to be able to find our keys, and we want our car to start. We want a predictable return on our investments. We want our grass in our front yard to be uniformly green. And we also want to be able to find our chapstick. General opinion, all the moms laughed at that one. The general opinion is if we can have these things, then we can be happy. And certainly the past few years has taught us there's, there's, this is not a guarantee. We are not guaranteed to have order in our lives. And post-traumatic stress disorder has become almost a feature of society. The term can certainly be overused, but there is something to having your world turned upside down that, that, that shakes what you know to be true. Shock is real. Losing confidence in how things are supposed to be is real. Figuring out your next move is incredibly difficult when every time you turn in a direction, you get bit doing it. And this is true not just for societal woes, but it's something that we deal with very intimately and very personally, not just the large-scale global kind of chaos that we've seen, but it's also true when a spouse dies, chaos ensues, or the loss of the job, or the onset of a chronic disease, or coming to terms with a child's disability. When we have this elimination of this path that we, we thought we were on, a direction we thought we could go, and then, for, for some reason, everything changes and that is no longer an option. These are daily occurrences not only for believers but also for unbelievers. They all fall in the same category. And for believers, there can be the blessings that go along with obedience where we behave in ways we're supposed to and we are rewarded for those. And there are consequences that go with disobedience. But there is also the times that we obey, we do the exact right thing and we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We have checked all the boxes. We've prayed the right prayers. We've gone in the right directions. And yet the outcome are terrible things for us. We're forced to recognize that there is no guarantee in this life that we can have in this fallen world a pain-free existence or that we can be guaranteed to see order in what's before us. And that pain and that disorder are, are a terrible place in which to live. And this is the reason that we have the book of Job to teach us how to think and what to believe when that comes upon us, remember what Job said to his friends in Job 10. He, he, he recognized how difficult this is, and this is what we can identify with. He says, are, are not my days few? As he responds to their accusations. He says, Cease, leave me alone, that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land as dark as darkness itself, as the shadow of death without any order. A land which is chaos, where even the light is like darkness. Job is a man who had given up on order. He had given up on light. He was, he was ready to be consumed with darkness. And yet in our Old Testament reading, you heard the words that came out of the mouth of Job. is That, that despair, that, that lack of joy, that lack of hope and trust and confidence comes to an end. His mind is changed. He was brought to a place of understanding and he was brought to a place where he could see that there was something more going on. And so Job is a friend to those who have chaos in their lives and it's a great benefit for us to turn to this passage this morning. So let's pray and let's seek the Lord's help that we would find the answers that Job gives. Our Father, we look to you this morning knowing that without your Spirit's help there is no light, that we ourselves are in darkness with respect to your word. And so Lord, by your word, teach us Help us to hear, help us to see, help us to believe. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This passage, this extended passage, is, is very simple. In this passage, the Lord speaks. He tells us about himself, and he also tells us about other things that he has made. And Job answers. And you're probably thinking, now, didn't we have this sermon just a, a few weeks ago? The, the, the Lord spoke, he told us about things in his creation, and then, and then Job responded. And you might be thinking, because there's kind of this pattern that goes on in the book of Job, where there's a lot to say, but, but it seems like it's not really moving the argument forward. But I want to show you that as you come to the, this, this second argument, the second discussion, the second speech that comes from God, that you are coming to a resolution, and it's that resolution that you are longing to see, even before what you get to the next time we come to this text, in the very end narrative portion of this book. For those who aren't familiar with the book of Job, if you haven't been with us for this, it's really made up of two portions. There's a narrative portion and a a dialogue or a poetic portion. And in the narrative, we, we learn about Job as the book opens. He is a person who is greatly loved, greatly respected, incredibly wealthy, and viewed as righteous by everyone in the world. Everyone sees this man as the epitome of godliness. And he's someone who is Rewarded according to that godliness that's in him. Everything in his life turns out great. But then we're immediately taken into heaven. We're given a heaven's eye view of Job. And, and we also hear what, what takes place in this court of heaven when the angels come before God and there among them is the one who is known as the accuser, literally the Satan. And he challenges God, or he is challenged by God, rather, to consider his servant Job. He does, and he comes up but as the accuser would, he comes up with the accusation. He says, Job only serves you because of how good you are to him. Take away some of that goodness. Take away some of the joys in his life and see if he will truly serve you. After that brief debate, the accuser goes to work and he destroys all the good things in Job's life. Suffering comes into his life sufficient to erase any of the joy that he had before. Job is left childless penniless, physically tortured by the boils that have covered every part of his body from head to toe. He ends up being resented by his wife sitting on the garbage heap, scraping his sores with broken pieces of pots, and he becomes the very definition of pathetic. Thankfully, you would think Job has good friends, and they are, they are almost the perfect friends. They come to him, and they mourn with him for seven days, showing sort of the perfection of how good these friends were. And everything is great up to that point. And then Job breaks out in speech. Job chapter 3, he begins to disclose what's going on in his heart. He is a man who is lamenting, who is craving the darkness. He wants his life to be gone, even to the point of wishing that he had never been born. He wanted that day erased from all of human history. That is in the dialogue portion of the book. And that's what's interesting is that when we we, we carefully analyze the book of Job, we find out that there is only 10% that's the story that we know so well and that over 90% of the book is going to be what takes place in in this poetry. And what comes in the poetry are things that, that, that we realize are necessary as part of understanding Job's pain. These people who don't have this God's eye perspective, not until God himself speaks They assume that Job has done something to deserve the horrible things that have happened to him. They they think that Job committed some sin, some secret sin, some sin that was nasty enough. However, However secret it was and compartmentalized that one sin was, that somehow that had invited and said, yes, these things deserve to happen to this man, and it must have been really wicked. But there's also Job's speeches. And in his speeches, Job believes that his suffering is at the hand of God, to be sure. He has no doubt that God is sovereign over what's happening to him. But he also thinks that it's a mistake on God's part. He thinks that God is missing information. If he, can just, if he can just get an audience and he can set the whole record straight and God can see what a terrible mistake this was. But God speaks and he has something very different to say. We saw this a few weeks ago when we looked back in Job 38. The Lord spoke for the first time. He surprised everyone. Elihu, that last speaker, not one of the three friends, but the last one said, Job, just forget about it. You're never going to hear from God. He doesn't do that. And what does God do? He steps in and he speaks. He comes in the form of the whirlwind. Elihu said there's a a storm coming. God speaks out of the storm. In surprise, he shows up and he speaks out of the storm, out of chaos, out of a whirlwind. What he does is he gives Job a tour. He he displays his creative power. He tells Job about all these animals that he had made, that that were the animals that were not part of Job's world, not the animal husbandry, the, the farming and ranching that he was doing with sheep and goats and camels. No, he's talking about wild creatures that live in the mountains, those that fly in the sky, things that Job would have no hope of entertaining how to tame. And God describes them in details and he celebrates them. It shows that the wisdom of his power, that his handiwork is pictured everywhere, that he understands every one of these creatures individually. And after hearing that, after being presented with this, the power of God through the speech and the storm, and after being presented with the wisdom of how he makes things, Job concludes what he says, and, or we come to the conclusion in chapter 40, verse 2, where God says, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer. And Job answers a kind of humble answer. He says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I shall lay my hand over my mouth. Once I've spoken, but I will not answer yes twice, but I will proceed no further. Job was silenced in the face of God, in the presence of God, before the wisdom of God. He had nothing to say. And that could have been an end. That could have sufficiently ended our story. Behold the power and the majesty and the wisdom of God. He knows what's going on. He knows your sufferings and and just be content with that. But there's something missing in what Job says. There, there's, there's evidence that he hasn't picked up on what he, he needed to, that there's more he needs to know. And so, just, so God continues to speak. And what does he say? Well, look in chapter 40, verses 6 and 7. The Lord answered Job out of the world when, again. Prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. God speaks again, speaks out of chaos, literally. And he tells Job to gird himself up like a man. The same thing that he said before. Take your your tunic and tuck it into your belt. Get ready for action. This is what you do when you're going to fight or when you're going to run. Both, again, are appropriate for Job. He is bracing himself like a man to stand before God. And again, God asks the question, verse 8 of chapter 40, Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? You hear that. It's painful to hear. God asking a man this question. Are you trying to make yourself feel better about you by making me worse? Think about that. This is a feature of our lives. This is something that you know well. How many times have you felt bad and then snapped at someone else and treated them like they are the worst offender on the planet? How many times have you seen some part of your life that you don't like, but if you can just pick out someone else who is worse than you and point out what's wrong with them, then somehow you will be better. This is the original sin after the original sin, Genesis 3.12. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. The reason I sinned is because of her. The woman immediately responds in the same way. The serpent, that one you created, he deceived me and I ate. James says it, well, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? you want a little relief, you want to take some of the pressure off yourself so you find something wrong with someone else. This is what Job has done, but the person he has picked out to do this with is God. Well, the opening of the Lord's speech communicates very clearly who God is, so that he is not one to trifle with, but it also communicates how God is. Look in verses 9 to 14. There he, he asks those questions that celebrate his power. Have you an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like his? The Lord highlights his his works, but he highlights himself. His thunder, his glory, and his beauty. His wrath against his enemies. His humbling of the proud. His treading down the wicked. This is the language of a divine warrior. This is a conqueror who is undefeatable. This is one who has power, which Job cannot imagine. His enemies are not able to stand before him. There's power in this. There's, there's humbling that takes place in this. But God has much more to say. What, what would God say after this? Well, he goes in a, in a, a very interesting direction. And it comes to, to what is, has to be the most intriguing part of the book of Job is this discussion of these two creatures that take up two whole chapters. The behemoth in verses 15 through 24 of chapter 40 and then the Leviathan in, in, in all of chapter 41. It's a little bit like the first speech where God celebrated these all these different animals and talked about His role in creating them. But 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 these get a particular kind of attention. And you're what you're asking: Is this the same speech again? Is God just doing the same thing again, or is there more that's going on here? Probably right away you ask: What what are what are Behemoth? What is Leviathan? And there are candidates that, that emerge uh, with many different corners on what they, they might be. The, the most common, the most arguable, and you may have even picked up on this in, in your reading as you thought about these and you tried to picture these creatures, is, is you, you hear the, the behemoth and you think, you know, this sounds a, an awful lot like a hippo. He's, he's, he's in the reeds, he's in the marsh, he's a big, muscular creature, and they're very frightening. More people die every year by, by, by hippos than anything else. I don't know. I've heard something like that before. And then the Leviathan again, this thing that churns up the water, but it's reptilian in its description, you think, that, you know, that's got to be a crocodile. That has to be a crocodile. And, and, and you're right to evoke those images because there, there's something there to that, but there's also something more going on than that. And, and there's lots of debate. Some people have suggested that the behemoth might be a, a crocodile or even an elephant. The leviathan, some have suggested a whale or even a dinosaur. But we don't even have to speculate that much. if we, If we go back and we listen to what the scriptures would teach us. So let me, let me give you a couple of places to look as we think about this. First off, in the names of, of the creatures. Both of these creatures, behemoth and leviathan, those are Hebrew words. So those are transliterations. So when you read behemoth, you're reading Hebrew. When you read leviathan, you're reading Hebrew. And so we want to know what those are. So behemoth comes from a word that's probably related to a, another Hebrew word. Behema, which means beast or cattle. Sometimes singular and sometimes plural. You get an example of this in Genesis one twenty four. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle or behemoth, and creeping things and beasts, different word, of the earth, each according to its kind. Psalm 50.10, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle or behemoth, behemoth um, on a thousand hills. So it talks about, it talks about land animals and frequently the kind that are become livestock, but it also talks about those that are more than livestock, Frequently, it's a name for wild and often devouring creatures. It's used as a sign of God's judgment. Deuteronomy twenty-eight twenty-six speaks of God's judgment on the, idol- the idolatry of the people. And it says that your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And no one shall frighten them away. Or Isaiah 18, 6, Then they will be left together for the mountain birds of prey and the beasts of the earth. The birds of prey will summer on them, and the beasts of the earth will winter on them, meaning they will continue to feed and devour on them. There are other, other examples that testify to this. And interestingly, you see the, the word that comes up in Job 12. If you go back, you probably would have missed this. But again, in Job twelve seven, Job says, Now ask the beasts, and they will teach you. Same exact word, behemoth. And it says, In the birds of the air, they will tell you. Or speak to the earth and it will teach you and the fish of the sea will explain. Who among them, who among all these does not know that the Lord has done this? And in whose hand the life is the life of every living thing and the creature of all, and, the, and the breath of all mankind. Job suggests that, that this, this creature can give wisdom. But he, he says that in the plural, that they are creatures to examine. But there's something different in your passages. Look back at 40 verse 15. It says, look now at the behemoth which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. That behemoth word is typically a plural form when you see it like that. But here that, that plural form is treated as an individual, as a singular creature. That tells us that something's going on, that this is not just this is not a group of animals, that this is a singular kind of animal that can be testified to a group. And it says that he eats grass like an ox. That that verse could actually be translated. He devours grass like as a herd of oxen, picturing something much larger. And certainly there's the description, he has massive proportions, massive strength in every part. Its tail is like a tree, its bones as bronze beams, its ribs as bars of iron. And it says, the mountains yield food for him. And some could translate that, the, the mountains offer him tribute. It's almost as if the mountains are giving honor to the scope and the size and the mass of the power of this creature. Even those final verses that that speak of it, he says that this creature is undisturbed by a raging river, even as it fills his mouth. It's almost the idea that he would swallow the whole river Jordan. He could drink it in. Massive and overwhelming and frightening. The, the, The hippo is a good starting place for the design of this creature, but it's something so far beyond a mere hippo. And then you go to Job 41 and you learn about the Leviathan, and he is also well attested in Scripture. Psalm 144 a, a passage that's very similar to, to the celebration that you had in the previous, uh, in the Lord's speech. Psalm 104 testifies, celebrates God's wise and sovereign rule over all his creation. And then it says this in Psalm 104:24. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all! The earth is full of your possessions, the great and wide sea, in which are innumerable, teeming things, living things, both small and great, There the ships sail about, there is that Leviathan which I've made to play there. He's pictured it playing in the sea, but there's also the sense that the, 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 the ships may want to sail around the Leviathan as they certainly would. And back in Job 3, Back when Job was, was lamenting the day of his birth, he was wishing that he had never been born, he actually calls for a curse from, from either the, the false prophets or the, 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 the priests of Baal or, or whoever was at work for those who would, in Job 3.8, who curse, let them curse today, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. Speaking there of those who would, who would bring up this monster out of the deep, who would bring into the presence this chaos monster that would destroy the day on which Job was born. Isaiah speaks of this as well. Isaiah 26, 21. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. In that day, the Lord, with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Psalm 74 as well says, You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Again, this picture emerges. This is no mere crocodile. It's a starting point. But, but it goes far beyond that. This one is, as it says in verses 1 and 2, This Leviathan is uncatchable. He can't be hooked or barbed or snared. Verses 3 and 5, he's not reasonable. He can't be toyed with or tamed. Verses 6 and 7, he won't be bought and sold, and he certainly won't be filleted and fried. God basically says to Job, I dare you to touch him. See what happens to you if you go near him. You have no hope against his power. He is proud, and he is powerful, and he is beautiful, and his armor is impenetrable, and he breathes out fire. Verses 18 to 21 are all about that this is a fire-breathing dragon. And verses 22 to 25 tell us something else about them. maybe you missed this, but he is not only immovable, but he is also a heartless creature. In his chest is a stone. He cares not for you or for anyone else. There is no compassion whatsoever in him. And then verses 26 through 20 through 33, we're told that there is nothing, and there is no hope of defeating this one. Verse 34, he beholds every high thing and he is king over all the children of pride. You may not know what the children of pride are, but you know that is bad because God hates pride. And if he is king of those who are of, of pride, he must be evil. Maybe in reading that you can hear those words that Martin Luther crafted for us in that famous hymn. They are eerily familiar. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe his Craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. on earth is not his equal. And did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. This is who it's talking about. This is, this, this is the monster that is being paraded before Job. And what we have here is all the, this mountain of evidence and so much more that's testified outside of Scripture that, that, that these are the evil creatures that were known in the ancient world. This was part of the, the Baal myths and the Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian gods and the Ugaritic myths is that they, they all held creatures like this that, that were dangerous and were frightening and were overwhelming that could not be stopped. You might think of this as the super beast and as the dragon monster, inescapable, indifferent towards your hurt and unconquerable destroyers. They are chaos monsters. and Against them, men have no hope. That's a qualified statement because it's men have no hope in and of themselves, but that does not mean that they are without hope. And that is the point of God's revealing them to Job, of of God saying to them, Behold, look at these, Job, Go back to verse 9 of chapter 40. There is one who has power over these. Job 40, verse 9. God asked Job, Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and splendor. Array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Who is able to do that but God? He is able to humble the king of the sons of pride. God has power over Behemoth. We see this in chapter 40, verse 19. God testifies, he is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Meaning God is the one who, he may have impenetrable uh, ribs made out of iron. He may have bones of bronze, but that will not stop the sword of the Lord. He can't hide in the river and he can't escape being struck down. And then what he says in one of Leviathan. Can you dry out Leviathan with a hook or a snare with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Those are rhetorical questions. And the answer is obvious. We know exactly where the answer lies. It lies with God himself. He's saying, I can. Verse 10, no one is so fierce that he would stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? God says, who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. The behemoth and Leviathan both belong to me. God is saying something to Job that he needs to hear. God is saying and he's testifying that I am sovereign, that I have power over these, and I am the divine warrior who defeats these. Their worst enemy is their maker and sustainer. They exist because God wills that They act because God allows it. And yet the end of them is certain. Whatever fear they strike in men, it will be avenged upon them because their day is coming. They cannot stand before the Lord. And Job finally sees this. We, we, we come to, to chapter 42 and verses 1 through 6, and now we're able to make, to make a, a good understanding of what Job is saying here that we couldn't do before. Look at those words again. Job 42, 1. Then Job answered, and the Lord said, uh, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Job is making a faithful confession. He understands that God is sovereign, and he has said that before. This is something that he has testified to all along, but now he is able to say it in such a way that he understands that, that there is nothing that is outside the scope of God, and that God would not make a mistake. God's sovereignty would not allow him to, to do unrighteousness. So he makes that faithful confession, but he also has a new awareness that's evident in verse 3. Look again at that. Job says, you asked, who is this who hides Counsel without knowledge, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Job has a new awareness of who God is and of who he himself is. His high opinion of himself and of what he did now takes a backseat to seeing God for who he is. He understands God's purpose in his particular way in his life, and he also, as we go on to verse four, he has a changed attitude. We need to listen carefully to this. He says in verse 4, Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you and you shall answer me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. We need to ask what's different from the previous answer after the Lord's first speech when he said I'm vile. What shall I answer to you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Certainly there he had been brought low and he had been humbled and silenced. But now he says that, that there is something new that, that he is learning, something new that he is receiving. And what it is is that he has now seen God. And you, and you want to ask, well, in what way did he see God? Why, why is it that Job can say that he has seen him? Maybe your mind goes back to Exodus 33, whenever Moses had his encounter with God. God said, I will make my... All my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Was Job allowed to do what Moses had been forbidden to do? Was he allowed to see the face of God? Wouldn't this mean that Job would die instantly? No, Job didn't see the face of God, but he sees something of God. And God reveals himself in the world when he speaks through it. And he, he allows him to behold these creatures. And it causes him to see God in a new way, to understand, even through these terrifying creatures. Who are, in the ancient world, immovable and uncomfortable and devouring and destroying creatures. of, of the, 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 the superlative of whatever evil is they are. But the Lord shows himself victorious over them. And this is the key to understanding this passage, that the Lord is saying, I am the one who fights for you. And I'm the one who is going to deliver you. I am the only one who has the power to free you from the chaos monsters, from the pain and from the destruction and from the oppression and from all that goes on that makes for suffering in this life. I am the one who is able to defeat them. God destroys the proud. He delivers from oppression. Maybe you're questioning, maybe you're questioning the exegesis here about these super monsters, and you're saying, Pastor Anderson, you're nuts. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a hippo and a crocodile. Let me encourage you to read the book of Revelation. I'm gonna read, I won't even encourage you, I'm just gonna read it to you so you have to listen to it. Because what you're actually finding in what what God is saying here to Job, you're finding in actually a microcosm of what you get in the larger book of Revelation. You're you're actually seeing this play out on a much larger scale there that you want to understand because it it is offering you that hope that you need that goes to those situations that seem beyond hope. Remember that John saw John, he opens up his apocalypse and he testifies to the things that he saw that were shown to him, to the vision that he was giving. John saw and Job saw. And what what did John see? Look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures saying, Come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed him. And power was given them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger, with death and by the beast of the earth. There is the invoking this image of this, these devourers that come into the earth, that go along with, with death. And then go to chapter 11, verse 7. It says in eleven seven, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit comes up out of the mire, will make war against them. And overcome them and kill them. Here is this terrifying creature coming into the world of man. And then that passage that we read earlier in our New Testament reading, now it begins to make sense. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. So the the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan. The literal name for the deceiver that, that opened up the accuser, that opened up the book for us. Now they're being thrown together in this picture. That Satan, we thought he was gone from the book of Job, but he's actually reappeared in chapter 41. That one who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, along with it the celebration, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren To accuse them before our God day and night has been cast down. Verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. There is cause for rejoicing because of the work of the divine warrior, the one that can destroy this monster, that can subdue him, that can cast him down. Turn over as well. Revelation 13, verses 1 through 4. Then I stood by the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horn ten crowns, and on the heads a blasphemous name. There again is this beast, this behemoth. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed." And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? But we know the answer. Who can make war with the beast? It's the Lord himself. Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God. And give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. There's a multitude of those, those, those parallels between these two texts, the beast and the serpent, and the dragon, the one from the land, the one from the sea. They were feared and worshiped by men, given permission to wreak havoc and to cause untold suffering. But only for a time, only for this window that's going to come to an end and they're going to be destroyed by the divine warrior. Such we're told in Revelation 20.10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Prince Job was in this, this book of Job was giving us the end of the story. It was telling us how it's going to turn out and it was giving hope to Job and that hope is for you. And so here's a few reminders for this. Let me try to make some brief applications from what we've learned from Job today. First, The book of Job and the book of Revelation both testify to the same. There are terrible evils at work in this world. And there are evils that are beyond man's ability to defeat. And they are there because God has allowed them to be there, whether it's cancer or whether it's a hurricane or whether it's this person that just is seeking to destroy your life and make you miserable. Those are there. They exist because they have been made by God. And God is Lord over the chaos And that chaos is not chaos to God. It is only chaos in your experience of it. But don't condemn God because of that. Because you don't understand these are things that are too wonderful for you. He has his purposes in them. His people have always had to deal with these things. Tyrannical governments and cancer and hurricanes. and, And all of the innocent people that are hurt by them. But these things are not ultimate. They are not the end these are only servants, whether Assyrians and Babylonians or, or communist totalitarians or leukemia or pancreatic cancer or the Antichrist or the beast or Satan, everyone a creature who sits under the hand of God, limited in what they can do, the harm that they can give, and how long they have to do it. Isaiah 46 gives us hope. It says, Remember the former things of, gold, of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. Friends, that is of that is great value to know and to hope, and just as, as Job was learning to hope that this was not the end, that there was more, that that time was, was not going to be forever, and that all his lamentations, all his sorrow, all his pain was temporary. Job had been rightly oriented all along. He knew that God was sovereign, but he did not see that sovereignty with hope. He didn't didn't see it as a reason for rejoicing in God or waiting on God. He didn't understand that you can be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then indeed that in that that you might be blessed, as our Lord Jesus taught us, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Satan had accused Job. Satan accuses you. And God says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for they prosecute, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. Friends, we're taught by this passage what true repentance looks like. It has to be not only saying I'm sorry, not only saying will you forgive me, but it has to be, as the name is, it has to be a change of mind. Repent. Rethink. Metanoia is the Greek word. Change your mind about it. We have to see things as God sees them, as he's revealed them to us, to look to that and have hope. And that can be our suffering as well, that we need to repent of how we view it. The misery that comes to us in this life of not seeing that for what it is, is something under the sovereign hand of of God that is only there because of his bare permission and that is surely temporary and is going to be defeated by him at last. And that's where we should finish Samuel Rutherford once wrote, and he wrote to another pastor, and he wrote to another pastor from prison, and he said this, All was but children's play between Christ and me till now. If one would have sworn unto me, I would not have believed what may be found in Christ. When did he come to know Christ in that way? He came to know Christ in that way as he was suffering, as he was suffering unjustly, as he was in prison. So he learned to celebrate who Christ was, and so we ought to learn as well. Again, the book of Revelation gives us hope. A larger exposition of this short passage in Job. John reveals to us in Revelation 19, 11, Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and in righteousness he makes war. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he is the one who defeats the beast. He defeats the great dragon. They are no more before him, gone forever, no more to haunt or to terrorize the people of God. Revelation twenty ten. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the false where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Why? Because the Lord will make it so. Let's pray together. Our gracious God. We confess this morning that our hope has not been in you. When terror has been before us, when suffering has overcome us, when miseries have overwhelmed us in this life, Lord, we have too much blamed you, too much looked for vindication in this life, too much waited on the wrong helps rather than waiting on you. Lord, would you magnify yourself in our sight, especially would you magnify Christ who is our victorious warrior, our shield and our defender, our deliverer, our God in whom we trust. Make us to know and believe upon him that we may be rescued from all that is in this world, from our sin, from Satan, even from all that would cause us harm. Let us believe and let us wait. In hope, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.